This time on CQ Speaks, we look to writing to offer a bridge between the military-civilian divide and we bring out the inner critic with the team from Book Reviews while they review reviews. That's coming up on CQ Speaks. Dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of CQ Speaks, a podcast from the Carolina Quarterly. My name is Sarah George Waterfield, Editor-in-Chief, and we are once again ensconced in the terracotta walls of the CQ office, where we are putting the final touches on our latest issue, 68.2. Uh, you can head over to thecarolinaquarterly.com to order your copy. And new in this issue, we are starting to feature some poetry translations, as well as um, a multimedia essay. What that really means is that layout is having a fit. New on this podcast, we have several fresh voices, including outgoing reviews editor Ben Murphy and his replacement in training, Carly Schnitzler, who are talking about what makes a stellar review and the types of books they see coming down the pipeline this spring. But first, a conversation with fiction editor Paul Blom and Davis Winky about their collaboration with UNC's Humanity for the Public Goods upcoming writing workshop for veterans, popular narratives, and the experience of war. Okay, I am joined in office today by Paul Blom and Davis Winky, who are co-organizers of a new event on UNC's campus called Popular Narratives and the Experience of War, which is sponsored by uh, the Graduate School at UNC and Humanities for the Public Good. And they are here today to talk a little bit about the event, um, the inspiration behind it, the sort of purpose behind it and mission as well. Um, so welcome, guys. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you in today. Um, maybe we could just start with you all describing kind of what the event is. Yeah, so this event um, started as a course project, but has grown far beyond our control. But one of the core ideas is that, you know, in America, there exists this civilian military divide. It's something that has only grown in recent decades with the transition to an all volunteer military. And today, less than 1% of the American population has or ever will serve. Maybe. Uh, I said has. <laughs> um, but the fact of the matter is that there is a very tangible divide. And a lot of that has to do with, I theorize in my own research, the way that American popular culture portrays combat and the military experience. And so the idea behind this event is the stories that need to be heard to push back on this civilian military divide are those who have been in uniform and are now out in the civilian world. And the core idea of popular narratives in the experience of war is to explore the role of popular culture in enforcing this civilian military divide through the eyes of four veterans turned humanists in a public panel discussion, uh, they have told their stories in some sense, and we'll be able to offer perspective on the ways that popular narratives of war affected them as they entered military service, as they served in uniform, and how it's affected their transition back into civilian life. But the part perhaps that we're the most excited about is the writing workshop, where um, Paul here is going to be designing a framework to teach local veterans 
narrative and storytelling skills so that they might be able to tell their own stories and help push back on this civilian military divide that way. Yeah, so following the the panelist discussion, which side note, that portion is open to the public, no prior registration necessary. Um, prior or After that, we will shift gears to the portion of the event that is still free, but does require um, prior registration. And we'll have more info on that later. But um, we'll shift gears, we'll have a lunch for our, our participants, um, and then we'll break off into small group writing workshops. So we've got a number of, um, graduate student writing instructors here at UNC that have volunteered, um, all of whom have either experienced leading workshops or facilitating workshops for potentially difficult um, or sensitive topics, and or all of whom are somehow um, deeply invested or engaged in the military population. Um, and then our panelists are also gonna join our facilitators. So we're having about, we're expecting roughly 10 facilitators um, each working with three or four veterans, uh, depending on how the registration numbers wind up. Um, we hope, I'd love to have to recruit more uh, uh, facilitators, so feel free to register. Um, but yeah, the goal is for each trained facilitator to sit down, work with a small group, um, to see what these individuals are bringing in, um, and, and to find out what, how best we can serve them in terms of allowing them or giving them the tools, empowering them, to reflect on their own narratives, their experiences, and start shaping and constructing um, a narrative about their experiences, which could very well be framed uh, by this larger frame that Davis has been discussing, but we're also leaving that stage open to, um, to embracing or constructing any kind of narrative really that they want to. Um, implicitly, it's gonna be somehow related to uh, their veteran experience, but it might not be explicitly related to it in the narrative. So it's, a, it's going to be, I think, a unique event and uh, hopefully one that we could continue um, in perpetuity down the road. You know, Paul, you actually bring up a really good point about, you know, things that aren't necessarily explicitly related to guys' military experience can be inseparable from it. In fact, um, you know, um, Slaughterhouse-Five comes to mind. So... Absolutely. But I think another thing that has overwhelmed us about this project to this point is the amount of support we've had um, from organizations around campus and in the community when it comes to putting this event together. I mean, it it started as a course project with two $300 budgets slapped together to make a $600 one. But since then, we've had support from now, of course, our sponsors, Humanities for the Public Good and the Graduate School, but also significant support from both the Division of Fine Arts and Humanities and the Division of Social Sciences within the College of Arts and Sciences at UNC. Um, the Campus Veterans Resource Center is an important stakeholder has been working with us. The Department of English Comparative Literature is helping train our facilitators. The Curriculum and Peace, War, and Defense is excited about the chance to have their undergrads study a little bit about cultural narratives of war. And they've actually lent us their department admin, uh, Luke Morgan, who's been a lifesaver for Huge us. Huge help. Thank you, Luke. Oh, yeah. And then the History Department, the Center for the Study of the American South, the Writing Center, and even, even Starbucks on Franklin Street is going to give us... Uh, more coffee than we can possibly drink in one day, which then again, we're gonna have 
we will we ten will grad students <laughs> in one room plus a bunch of military guys. We'll we'll see how that goes. So, so it sounds like this is really sort of stretching out and throwing out different threads to a lot of different organizations on campus and off campus, but also kind of what you were saying before, allowing a space for like, allowing and facilitating a space for a lot of different types of narratives somehow wrapped up in military service to kind of emerge in maybe ways that you aren't even expecting. Yeah, and that's been kind of one of the exciting aspects is, as as Davis has intimated, this event keeps growing and shaping. I mean, it originated with the two of us working separately with an idea for a panel discussion and me as, as the lit guy thinking like, let's do a writing workshop. And then, um, you know, we kind of came to this idea of what if we collaborate? What if we make this a two-part event? Um, and yeah, every partner organization we reach out to, by the way, thank you to all of those partner organizations and organizations supporting us, um, uh, you know, has given us input and ideas and yeah, bringing in all these different voices could, could it'll be interesting to see what final products happen. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, it would be great even to, we've been tossing around the idea of having some follow-up workshops, even on a couple following Saturdays, even if it's a smaller, you know, a smaller group um, in a smaller space, just a way to follow up to see the kinds of narratives that get produced. Um, and even possibly, again, depending on what it generates, um, creating a kind of digital repository at the very least, where we, where Davis and I reflect on the event and evaluate it and assess it, um, bring in some voices from these outside organizations, um, provide access to like any resources that we develop for it. But ideally, as well, give a repository for these these veterans' voices to um, the actual narratives they produce, um, and hopefully some video of the event as well. I shouldn't forget that. So. Yeah. Um, no, this sounds great. So, what are? Um, let's get into some of the nitty-gritty as well. So the event is called, once again, Popular Narratives and the Experience of War, um, taking place on April 27th, 2019, right? 10 o'clock in the morning? 10.30. is when the panel discussion will kick off. And where's it happening? It is happening, so the panel discussion is happening in room 3408 in the Carolina Union, and if you register for our workshop, hello veterans who may be listening, um, I will push you more information regarding uh, the room where you can find food afterwards because we're getting you a free lunch and uh, the room where we'll be holding the workshop. It's also in the union, but we don't want to quite broadcast those spaces. Where the less, free food can be found. Less the so yeah, so ideally, ideally anyone who comes is going to come at 10.30 for the public discussion um, and, uh, and then even those who register for the workshop, ideally they'll be coming in the morning as well. Sure. And then we'll shift gears and kind of we'll have another room set up um, for the different uses of the space. And yeah, if you're if if you're not interested in the workshop and just want to come to the panel discussion, um, yeah, what is it, 3408? Yep. We just finalized that the other day, so it's exciting that we we finally have an official venue confirmed. So. <laughs> and where can people register? So, we have a Facebook page and a Twitter account. Both are, the handle for each is UNC Vets Writing, and on either page you can find our registration link for the writing workshop, or you can see some of our promotional materials just for the panel discussion or the event writ large. 
Uh, there's some basic information on our panelists there and also some more information on the event and its framing questions. And right now, at least, the Humanities for the Public Good has been gracious enough to host um, our current web page, the current web incarnation for this event, again, which also has links back to our social media stuff and to the registration page. Um, so that URL is hpg.unc.edu forward slash home forward slash UNC vets writing. And we will have all of this in the show notes. So. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, great. Well, any last words about the event and what y'all are what you all are doing? I think we're just really opportun really excited for this opportunity to, you know, not just be doing interdisciplinary work because this is pretty cool interdisciplinary work, <laughs> if I say so myself. But also, we've been very encouraged by the institutional support that we've received, yeah. despite the fact that this is an event aimed at the local veteran community rather than just the campus community. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people want to criticize academia as being unwilling to work with local and community partners and a lot of campus organizations through their generous support have kind of turned that conception on its head and we're I know we're definitely thankful about that and we hope our participants will be too yeah yeah again just I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because again our idea is that it's it's mutual collaborative knowledge building um, and so we we don't want it either to be we don't want it to be the university reaching out to necessarily teach the community something, we're also inviting community members to come in and teach us stuff too. Um, so that's really a, a core thing that we want to emphasize. And just yeah, how grateful we have been to all these different organizations for supporting us and and allowing this event to snowball. Mm -hmm. And and which is great. And depending on the results, you know, we're already talking about how do we make this a recurring event. So um, and anybody out there listening, if you have any questions or want more info, feel free to reach out to either of us. Um, yeah. That's great. Thank you, Davis. Thank you, Paul. Um, and best of luck. We hope to have you back for a recap um, to see how the event goes. Sounds good. Thank well, you. We'll see you then. Hey, everybody. My name is Sarah George Waterfield, Editor-in-Chief of Carolina Quarterly. I am joined in the CQ office today by our two book review editors, Ben and Carly. Um, would you all like to introduce yourselves? Sure, Ben. Sure. Um, <clears throat> Like Sarah said, my name is Ben. I am book review editor. I have been for two years now and I'm transitioning out, handing the reins to Carly. So the upcoming print issue will be my last contributions. And I'm Carly Schnitzler. I have big shoes to fill. And <laughs> and I'm excited to be transitioning in as uh, the new book review editor. So how have you all come to this position as book review editor? Like, what, is that, what does that mean for you both? Uh, so in, in my case, it started with writing reviews first for Carolina Quarterly. They were the first um, pieces of that genre I'd written. I think I wrote three or four, one of which was in a print issue uh, a while back, and then a few online. Uh, we can talk more in a second about the difference between the print and online reviews. But yeah, I first did that because another friend of mine in the English department at UNC was the book review editor. He reached out to me with a book he thought I'd be interested in with, um, interested in. So I first wrote for him, got interested in it, and then when he was ready to transition out, um, I had written enough that he felt comfortable handing it off to me. So that's how I got in. Yeah, and I, I started out as a reviewer this well, as well this fall, um, and I actually had my 
first and only review coming out in the Springs uh, print edition. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, You're such a natural. You didn't need all the practice. <laughs> no, it's, it's been an accelerated process, but one that I'm excited about because I have a, a background in publishing and worked in publishing for a couple years prior to uh, starting grad school at UNC. And so it's it's been really fun to sort of get back in touch with publishers and like see ARCs coming in. Um, that was always one of my favorite parts of working in publishing. And and also like the, the best part of the, all of this is being able to work with all of the talented reviewers because um, everyone's just really bright and perceptive and has a lot uh, a lot of exciting things to say about the literature that's coming out. And so you have a background in publishing. What what did that look like? So it looked very different than <laughs> than what this is looking like. Um, I, I worked I worked in commercial nonfiction. Um, mm. So what that translates to is a lot of business and self help books. So not exactly uh, the poetry and literary fiction that we are accustomed yeah. to and love here at Carolina Quarterly. Um, so I, it was it was a lot of it was a lot of good. I learned a lot of things. Let's say that, uh, working in commercial nonfiction, um, and the thing that stay that's sort of staying consistent between my role there and this new role as a book review editor is, like, getting getting to know like what's coming down the pike and uh, sort of understanding the trends and how. How the industry is sort of reacting to culture and how writers are responding to what's going on um that looks very different in business and self-help yeah. than it does in uh literary fiction and poetry um and i i will say literary fiction and poetry is more of my cup of tea <laughs> so i'm excited to sort of be a little bit more uh involved in that world yeah. um, and being in touch with publishers is really fun mm -hmm. We are glad to have you here, too. This is very <laughs> exciting. Yeah, it's fun. Um, so in the reviews themselves, what is it that you both look for, value, um, kind of concentrate on when you're thinking about reviews, particularly in in a journal? Yeah, I mean, I can, I can start. Um, I think there are certain generic features of reviews that I look for as an editor when I get a first draft in from a writer. Um, some fairly obvious things that I, I usually actually ask for to begin with when a, when a person signs up to review I send them an info sheet about what we're looking for um, and those sort of very basic things are some sort of contextualization of the book within the wider publishing world you know is this a debut is it the author's 15th book where does it fit within a sort of literary tradition um, then there's usually some expectation of summary without spoiling too much of the book uh, which can be a tenuous balance but you know you want to give the reader a taste of the book and of course the point is not to only tell them what you thought of the book but to try to give the reader enough of a sense of the book so that that person can decide whether they want to go read the book so it can be sort of a, um, a yeah just a sort of tricky balance um, to give enough but not too much and then usually at the end of the review I'm looking for some kind of um, I mean, in, in our writing classes, we refer to this as like a zoom out or a so what, um, however you want to put it, basically some end of the funnel that broadens back out to the publishing world um, or what's going on. I think like, like Carly said, one of the things I find most exciting about reviews as a genre is their sort of timeliness. Um, 
because the books themselves are often reacting to sort of things in the air, contemporary culture, society, current events, what have you. And because reviews are re like relatively short, personal genre, they can really give someone a chance to not only respond to that work, but whatever else is sort of going on. Um, and especially when we're able to publish them online fairly quickly, it can be a pretty um, immediate feedback, both for the author and just sort of, you know, how does this book relate to the state of politics or sort of environmental issues or, you know, whatever seems to be um, on people's minds the most. Yeah, and more about kind of kind of the so what of reviews, what I find really valuable about them is um, sort of the difference in tempo that they sort of make readers and writers engage with. Um, that's very different from like the best of lists or like the Amazon rankings or what have you, where, where a lot of people get their book, book news from or whatever. Um, and so I think reviews, why I love them as a genre is because they both as a reader, as a writer and as an editor, like it causes you to think critically about a work in real time, take half a step back and see it in context, reflect on the work as a whole, and um, like offer offer an opinion on it and 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 see what what works and what are the shortcomings um, and see the culture really reflected back in a book too. Um, that's why I think contemporary literature is a very exciting place to be and working in um, is that it allows you to see like both trends at a micro and kind of macro scale. And so what, I mean, what kinds of trends are you seeing now? Like what is on people's minds? I think one trend that I think is really crossing the genres, but, so we review probably most fiction, but also poetry um, and some nonfiction as well. But one trend that seems to be cutting across, is, I mean, it's, it's perhaps the fairly obvious one, but is a sort of literature of anxiety. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, su no surprise, I suppose, but um, people sort of trying to make sense of a world in which norms are eroding. Uh, I mean, this is, I think, a language that we are used to hearing about in the sort of news cycle. And a few years into a certain person's presidency, the literature market, especially in independent publishing, has sort of been at this for a few years now. So I think it in some ways covers the tenure of my book review position to see people using small and independent presses as an outlet to vent, um, sort of make a space for themselves that they don't feel like is maybe as welcoming as it once was. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know if that's, that's maybe more of a temperament than it is a subject matter trend that I've noticed. But yeah, I think the carving out of a of a personal history and, and really finding a place, as you said, in in a time where just a lot of identities feel like they're being eroded, um, is kind of is is a is a large trend that we are both seeing in, in both fiction and in poetry. Um, I'm thinking of the review that I wrote is is a work of uh, it's actually a work of nonfiction, but it's flash or flash nonfiction. Um, that sort of like hits that square on the head um, and then a couple of reviews that we have coming out in in uh, online sorry um, are are engaging with that as well and and some some explicitly engaging with political topics but others just sort of 
making space for a personal narrative or personal history within um, within an era of anxiety. Yeah, and I was actually gonna, it was funny when Carly, you were talking about your past in like self-help publishing, because um, it made me think of one review that sticks out in my mind that was actually written by one of our undergraduate um, interns. Um, and it, it's, it was on a book, um, I, th I think the book's title, if I'm remembering correctly, was um, Your Art Can Save Your Life. And it was another nonfiction book. And it was a very sort of, like we're saying, a, a book written for a very specific time with a very sort of pragmatic purpose. The author didn't call it self-help, but it was very much um, a response book that tries to think about you know, how art can be a sort of bulwark against anxiety. So, um, I mean, that's probably the most concrete representation of that, and in other forms, it takes a more sort of narrative, diffuse form, I suppose. Yeah, check it out. It's online. <laughs> <laughs> TheCarolinaQuarterly.com. <laughs> that's the one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... Okay, so Carly, I want to get back to your review in a second. Sure. Um, but let's talk about um, the kind of overall place and roles of reviews in CQ specifically. Like, what did the nuts and bolts of your um, kind of day to day or year to year editorial arc look like? Like, how does that go? Yeah, I can um, talk about that. Um, just because Carla and I have recently been having a lot of conversations about handing the role off and what it actually looks like. Um, so Carolina Quarterly publishes two print issues a year, um, and there's usually two to three re reviews in each issue. So the sort of hard, fast deadlines that we as book review editors work off of is working backwards from those print run deadlines. Um, and so if you can do simple arithmetic, um, that adds up to like four to six print reviews a year, which is of course not really that much. Um, so to supplement that, and really I think where the bulk of our work goes is online reviews. Um, like I said earlier, that's in part really great because it allows a much faster turnaround for authors. Um, it allows the reviews to get out to the authors of the books, not only the reviewers, and have them respond in real time, which has been really neat to see. And that can vary, but we're usually trying to publish two to three online reviews a month. Um, so obviously the, that's a lot more work for us to do um, year round. So that would be in the summer and when we're all sort of in school together. And basically the process is initiated by the book review editor reaching out to small and independent presses. Um, our philosophy at CQ is that the mainstream publishing houses probably get enough attention from mainstream outlets and so we're really trying to highlight like independent presses literary presses based at universities um, and basically that's just a process of Carly or I trolling the internet looking for things that are of interest um, over time once we sort of frequent the same publishing house and the same publicity agents will have more of a personal correspondence they'll send us catalogs um, if they know we're interested in a certain thing, they may just send that to us. So it's a process of us looking for what we find interesting, what we think our readers might find interesting. We request those books, um, those free books, I should specify, um, which we refer to as ARC, as advanced reader copies. Um, and that's really one of the biggest perks for us to get reviewers of the books, is to give them free, great books that they can take home and put on their shelves and um, put it right next to their review that they wrote of the books. Yeah, sometimes ahead of time. That's that's the fun part is that's getting really cool. getting books before they come out. 
yeah, it, uh, as Carly said earlier, I mean, it's cool as an editor to see those trends before they hit the shelves. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a certain insider feeling um, that you get when you get an ARC and you know that in a month everyone else is going to be talking about it, but you get it first. I mean, I think it's a really cool feeling. Um, yeah, so at that point we, we look for reviewers um, and historically the reviewers have mostly been graduate students in the Department of English at UNC Chapel Hill where Carolina Quarterly is based. But increasingly it's becoming a lot more diffuse. Um, people from other academic institutions, people who are freelance writers, um, we have more and more people coming from outside and we welcome people emailing us with interest. Um, so we, we can maybe talk about that a little more later. Um, so then once we have the books and the reviewers, it's just a process of working usually on the writer's timeline to um, get a review ready. The, the other thing about the online schedule is it's very flexible, so we can work around other people's deadlines and so that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and then the last step is obviously publishing, but I think actually the, the very last step, which I think is the most fun, is sending the review back to the publisher who sent us the book, and in many cases they'll then send it on to the author and then Sometimes if we if we get lucky, the author will then contact the reviewer and thank them, or we've never had anyone berated over a review. <laughs> um, so it's usually a really um, positive sort of mutual interchange. But what, What's been your favorite sort of author interaction that you've had then in your right. tenure? Hmm. Um, I think actually that one I just, I had brought up a moment ago was probably my favorite. Um, I mean, we have pretty frequently authors who will respond via Twitter or something just to say, you know, thank you for this review, um, which is always nice to hear. But in the case of that review I mentioned from the undergrad intern, they actually asked for the writer's email so she could write a personal thank you. And as I understand it, I actually didn't see it, but as I understand it, it was like a pretty profuse, like, oh, that's really effusive thank you. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, because the particular writer was you know, is sort of a young, developing, aspirational artist and writer that meant a lot to get that sort of feedback from the from the author. So, what? Talk to me a little bit. You mentioned a couple of things that I think you think reviews can do, but what do you all look for in reviews um, when you are in the process of editing, um, when you are preparing for publication, things like that? Like, what makes a good review? Yeah, so Ben touched on this a little bit earlier, just sort of in, in the nuts and bolts. Like, we, we yeah, we do want a little bit of a summary, but not too much, and we toe that line carefully. We want definitely some opinion inflected in there. Um, but I think, I think, as we can all comfortably say, we just, like, love books and love what language can do. Um, and so when reviewers pick up on, like, like the real beauty that's in uh, a work of fiction or poetry, um, like that's kind of what makes a review sing for me. Um, like seeing seeing the author's words in concert with the reviewer's words uh, on a page, like together and melding in, in sort of a combination of like, here's this beautiful thing that's in the world and here's someone's <laughs> beautiful opinion on it. Um, that's that's kind of what makes reviews great is is having that blend. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely would echo that sort of any time a reviewer can capture the sort of the language of the original work and also um, simultaneously sort of assert their own voice. I think which can be really difficult. Um, 
like if you're trying to quote, paraphrase, summarize a lot, it can be easy to let the voice get away from you. Um, but I think the best reviewers do manage to do both. Even, even in cases where your own voice and sort of perspective is like radically different than who you're writing about. Um, but I think I see this especially, we do try to focus on books in translation a good deal. Um, and it's interesting because those contexts, the book, the context the books are coming from are often so different from the world of the writer, um, especially, you know, if they're a graduate student in our department. So I always think it's interesting to see how people are sort of stretched by these really unfamiliar texts and idioms and things. And what do you think the graduate, I mean, we're all graduate students, but what do you think the graduate student review writers get out of the process? A free book. Yes. <laughs> um, the number one perk. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, I've had a lot of people tell me that they, they, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of cliche. I think that we all know that we all went to graduate school in English and now we don't have time to read novels or literature. <laughs> but I think in, in one sense, it just gives you sort of an excuse and an incentive to think deeply about literature that is not connected to a class or a grade or your dissertation or some sort of institutional pressure. Um, and I, I think, again, I think the best reviews that I've seen either take that as a, like a real break from the sort of more laborious things that we do in grad school, or in some cases, like use the book as a sort of launch pad to an idea that may end up in their other work. Um, so I think it can go both ways. It can be sort of an escape or a sort of rejuvenation um, brainstorming. Yeah, why not both? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so let's get to some specific reviews. Um, Carly, you have one coming out, you said, in our new spring issue, which, which is going to be out May 1st. Yeah. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I had a great time reviewing um, Matthew Vollmer's permanent exhibit, which came out last fall. Um, and... It's a really interesting book. It's it's a series of short essays that originally started as Facebook posts. Oh, wow. Um, Vollmer is a professor at, I, I believe, University of Virginia Tech. And he, he started this book as a series of Facebook status updates as a way for him to reflect on like an always-on kind of culture that he's a part of. He's a creative writing uh, professor. Um, who's apparently always on Twitter, as many of us are. Sure. <laughs> um, and he sort of wanted to, like, like flex a paradox of kind of the medium that he was working with and kind of make, make a permanent exhibit, the title of the book, out of kind of an impermanent culture and an impermanent sort of, like, chronologically, algorithmically-based uh, platform. Um, so I had a lot of fun writing it. Um, every, it. There are 41 short essays. Each one is a paragraph, albeit sometimes oh, wow. a very, very long paragraph. I was interested in the sort of genre of like flash nonfiction that yeah. you were talking about, and I d didn't it's, know what that looked it's like. It's but not that's something so that I'd like ever read yeah. before. It, is, is, it was totally unlike anything that I'd ever read. Um, and I'm happy to read a little bit of, of the review. Yeah, please do. That's of interest. Permanent exhibit started as a series of Facebook status updates, a reflexive vehicle reflection on an always-on culture simultaneously distracted by and over-focused on the churn of the news cycle. On the platform most often blamed for this per pervasive distraction and over-focusing, Bulmer created his public space to let his mind wander. He says of writing the essays that make up permanent exhibit, 
Most of the time, I had no idea where I, once I started, I might end up, which for me as a writer was like riding a bicycle down a really steep, unfamiliar hill. I didn't know where the switchbacks would take me. My eyes were wide open. I had to hold on tight. And as a way to retroactively organize the associated flow of thoughts that compose permanent exhibit, Vollmer created a digital index for the co topics covered in permanent exhibit from from quote AARP to zucchini with everything in between including Grand Theft Auto 5 and Whitney Houston and Iran <laughs> and man named Pearl. In many ways this index is the best way to understand the book to see in a simple list the volume and range and idiosyncratic specificity of thought that tenderizes the human mind. The essay, or the index and the essays it accompanies are the thoughtful products of the attention or distraction economy. Permanent exhibit is notable for its permanence of form, the exhibition of the mind, but relies on the ephemerality of its content, the thoughts within. Vollmer's essays issue the common rhetorics of outright fear and criticism of the economy we live in and the technology that defines it. Instead, he provides a way forward for both. Permanent exhibit is an experiment full of meaning and thought, one that ask what we asks what we have to gain by being where we are and using what we have rather than what we have lost. So that's, that's great. That's, that's the end of the review. The, the beginning of it is in, <laughs> is in the rest of the issue. You have to wait for the beginning. Yeah, um, this is a very sort of Twittery way of going about things, oh, I yeah. guess, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, brand. Yeah, right. Um, so why did you choose to review this book? Because I had never read anything like it. <laughs> and yeah. I, was, I was curious, like, like how it could be pulled off and, like, what it could accomplish. Because it, it, it could be seen as, like, a kind of a gimmicky book. And, like, don't mm -hmm. get me wrong, I, I love a good gimmick. <laughs> but sometimes they're no more than that yeah and this sort of felt to me like it overcame that maybe maybe hurdle that it, it created for itself um and <clears throat> really really provided some interesting commentary on what it's like to be alive and be a writer now um and I I loved moments in the book because I just felt like it was just incredibly honest about how we engage with like the internet and the world simultaneously. Um, he, he like, he, he holds, he holds nothing back really about how, how that works. Like, mm -hmm. like I forgot to like look something up that I was going to look up. Then I went upstairs and like talked to my kid about robots <laughs> and then went back downstairs and like started Googling Justin Bieber because I heard something about him on the radio. <laughs> and it sort of traces this in like in a way that kind of fluctuates between like the the very very like quotidian and mundane um and the very like sort of highbrow like this is this is the sort of sublime what I'm getting out of this um what of this this experience in my life right now um so it was it was really an experiment in presence I think um and what it's like for something to be present after it's already happened <laughs> And um, what it what the like archivization of that looks like on platforms like Facebook and Twitter, um, and what it looks like put in a book like of all things. Um, so so sort of the mediation of like 
his thoughts and the permanent exhibit of his mind um, was what really drew me to it and was really cool about reading it. And, and I'll just I'll just mention um, on the topic of serendipity, I actually do remember um, when um, Carla was not yet a book review editor um, when she wrote that piece, of course. Um, but even when I was going about sort of requesting books from publishers, that's not actually one I requested. I didn't know um, Vollmer. I didn't know his work. Um, but we do occasionally get sent things by presses or by authors who know about us. Um, and that was one that I didn't know anything about. But I, when we got it, you know, I thought it looked interesting. I was happy to see someone picked it up. And here we are publishing a review of it that, you know, um, speaks to the sort of yeah, the, the sort of random connections that the internet provides in, a, in an yeah. interesting way. <laughs> um, so what what other reviews do you all have coming down the pipeline? So you have some really good poetry reviews, which I'm very excited yeah. about. Um, a couple of our reviewers over at Duke are doing some great stuff um, it, with with upcoming poetry releases, notably uh, uh, Ilya Kaminsky's Death Republic. Um, oh, wow. That will be coming out hopefully in April. Um, online? Online, mm -hmm. yeah. And we, we do have some others. Yeah, and it's interesting. Um, that book, um, obviously, if people are familiar with contemporary poetry, that one has kind of taken the world by storm, the, the poetry world. Um, and it's interesting. I was just actually looking at our sort of upcoming. And we also will be publishing soon a republication of Chekhov stories. Um, and so obviously we have a lot of breadth. This is a, a series that one of the presses we frequent, I, I believe it's Restless Books, um, does these sort of republished classics, which I think graduate students really like to review because they're, they're, they can do a sort of historical sense about, you know, like um, what was this book or what did these stories mean in original context versus now? So that is a very sort of historical, um, if not scholarly, at least sort of, um, um, what would you say, sort of archival book review versus the Deaf Republic, which I think of as a much more sort of like of the moment piece. So mm -hmm. we, we'll have both coming to you shortly. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I'm excited about to do, to do going forward is to continue the broadening of the genres that we engage with as uh, review editors. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, everybody loves a good novel and loves a good piece of literary fiction, of course. Um, but I, I, I do have a soft spot for the poetry and even sort of the weirder works of uh, experimental nonfiction, like the one I reviewed. Um, so, so we're and and the, and the reprints like the Chekhov's book as well. Um, so I'm excited to continue to open that up and really get the breadth of what's going on at these indie publishers and presses. Yeah. Um, and so what other kinds of things are you hoping to do kind of in moving forward? Yeah, um, so I, I, I kind of, I'm stepping into big shoes and I'm, I'm excited, <laughs> that I'm excited, I'm excited to like keep the good work that Ben's been doing up. Um, and one thing that I want to sort of continue to boost is like our interactions with the authors of these books, mm -hmm. um, because they they are working with small presses often they're easier to get in touch with um and that's a really as been noted a really rewarding experience for both i think for everyone involved for the writers for like editors for me as an editor and for hopefully the author <laughs> getting their book reviewed um and so 
through that, I think as a, as a byproduct, hopefully like the social media presence will grow and uh, we'll sort of kind of expand our presence that way as well. Yeah. I mean, book, yeah, book reviews are such an interesting thing thinking about kind of um, social media and interactions as well because they're already a kind of like response Mm -hmm. Um, and so getting responses then kind of in both directions right both from the author but they're also in some ways like a little more open I think to um, our readers as well Um, they're a little bit closer like to us as readers um, than like the somewhat closed either fiction or poetry or whatever um, creative works that we put out yeah because because they're just they're an engagement with the work Mm -hmm. and not the work itself yeah um and i think as yeah as you mentioned that presents a really like interesting opportunity for like people to weigh in (laughs) since it's it's, since it's already a weigh-in yeah Um, (laughs) maybe we can get a sort of vulmer like um accumulation of facebook (laughs) crowdsourced review that would be kind of amazing (laughs) yeah I, i mean just to build on that i as i said i am stepping down from the role but i think even in recent months, um, we've had more and more reviewers from outside of the immediate UNC orbit. Um, mm-hmm. Partly that's been deliberate to reach out to other academic departments and other sort of freelance writers that I know personally, but it's also been a product, I think, of increasing the number of re- reviews we're publishing, people are seeing them and reaching out and wanting to write. Um, so, I mean, I, um, it's not, of course, you know, just as we have submissions and acceptances for the journal, it's not as if, you know, everybody who wants to write could just do so immediately, you know, it's a process, but I think with the increased social media, we could also hope to, um, yeah, receive reviews or at least sort of um, emails of interest from people who might want to write with us and work with those people and sort of get a broader range of voices um, doing these responses. So Ben, how would you get in touch with us? I would ask Sarah to clearly state the email because I can never remember. <laughs> it's really very difficult. It is carolina.quarterly at gmail.com. Perfect. Um, which we get a lot of junk into as well. So it sometimes takes a little while to get back to emails, but we do respond. Um, eventually you can also, um, again, go to our website, thecarolinaquarterly.com. Uh, which also has our contact information, um, but you should also, you know, interact with us on Facebook and Twitter and all of those other places um, where you can get in touch with us directly, too. Other things about reviews you want to talk about? I Like I said, I'm stepping down. Um, I actually, I was curious, so I tallied it up, and I have, I have been responsible for over 40 reviews. Oh, uh, wow. Which, yeah, which I think is a, is a decent tenure um, to leave behind. <laughs> um, but it's really made me excited to not leave the genre behind, whether it means writing for Carly as editor or just writing for other um, sort of outlets. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I um, have really enjoyed my time here and I'm really happy to be passing it on to someone who's so capable and um, brings such experience to it. Yeah. Well, great. Um, Thank you all for being with me uh, in the office today. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. That about does it for this episode of CQ Speaks. If you like what we do here and would like to learn more, you can visit us at thecarolinaquarterly.com, where you can read online exclusives, subscribe to the print or digital journal, and submit work of your own. Be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening, and you can follow all our exploits at facebook.com slash carolinaquarterly and on Twitter at nc underscore quarterly. Be on the lookout for our spring-summer issue, and in the meantime, read well, write well, and thanks for listening to CQ Speaks.